Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. That song puts nicely the what we could call the gospel response. Uh, The fact that because Christ has given his life for us, we say in response, then I will live for him. And and with open hands, we we offer everything to him. Uh, This is the response we see in the Apostle Paul's life in Acts chapter 20 as he uh, navigates tension in the church and trials outside the church. He does so with, with grace. He serves and he gives of himself willingly. We see that example in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're called to live similarly as Christians. This is helpful for us because there are so many times in life when we experience the the reality that people can be really frustrating. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? It's okay. This is a reality. People are frustrating. It's been said many times. Ministry in the church is a wonderful thing. It's just the people that make it really difficult right? People can be difficult. You've experienced this difficulty. Maybe you've even been one of those difficult people. Maybe. Maybe. We run into this kind of thing all the time. Relationships and families, it happens, right? In the church, even it happens. This place where we are to be a, a people who love one another and show the great bond of Christ and unity with one another, and yet there can often be tensions that come up in the local church. Not only here in the church, but it happens outside the church as well as we seek to you know, live a, a Christian testimony and kind of mind our own business. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in that Thessalonians when the Apostle Paul encourages the Thessalonian believers, you know, just let each of you mind your own business and seek to live a peaceable life. And it's kind of like, yeah, that sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? But we, we try to maybe mind our own business and then all of a sudden, you know, trials and suffering come upon us and maybe people outside of us give us a hard time. Ugh. So frustrating. Where does this come from? And how do we navigate times like that? In today's passage, the Apostle Paul faces scenarios like this, things that he didn't ask for. In fact, we can kind of pinpoint that they're not the result of his own mistakes or anything that you know, he had specifically done wrong. They're kind of the result of his commitment to live for Christ. And both inside the church and outside the church, he faces these difficulties, but he walks through them with grace. And I, and I think we see some principles here. It's a tricky passage because it, it's really just giving us the history of what happened. We're just kind of you know, watching like flies on the wall as these things happen to the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to rely somewhat on Paul's writings, his epistles in the New Testament, some of the things that were taking place around the same time to grasp sort of how he viewed these things and how we can learn from them as well. You remember the context, the Apostle Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem. And do you remember what he had been told basically in every city along the way on his way to Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit had given prophecies to different people along the way. And at each stop as he makes his way, the Apostle Paul is hearing, well, you're going to experience trials and suffering. You'll be bound with chains. You'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Each stop. He gets different messages like this. And and on top of that, then the believers are trying to persuade him, don't go, don't go, avoid the suffering. But Paul has this deep commitment, this deep understanding in his own relationship with the Lord. This is exactly what the Spirit wants him to do. And so he presses on. In today's passage, he arrives in Jerusalem and we see those prophecies just come to the surface. They're fulfilled. He's bound with chains and hand it over to the Gentiles. So how does Paul walk through this with such grace? I think it's because he has devoted himself to the proclamation of the gospel. And I think that's instructive for us as well. As we seek to navigate the tensions of life, it's, it's focusing again on the gospel that helps us to do so. 
Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in last week's passage, chapter 21, verse 13? If you don't have your Bible open to Acts chapter 21, now's a good time to open there. And it's not in today's section, but it precedes it. There in verse 13, the Apostle Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul had prepared his own heart. He had had focused his own life on the proclamation that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We could call that the gospel. It's, It's the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ. There's not salvation in any other, but only in the name of Jesus. This is the message that Paul took from place to place. And he says here in verse 13 and 14 that he's ready to die for the sake of that message. You see, he'd focused his life on the gospel. And this kind of rich gospel response that's ready to say, hey, I'll, I'll die even for the name of Christ. Later, the Apostle Paul will actually call that our reasonable response. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That by the mercies of God, we present ourselves a living sacrifice. That's kind of what the last song we sang together is about. Lord, take my life. I'm ready to give and do whatever you would have for me to do. And so I think it's, it's Paul's gospel devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ that allows him to navigate these waters with such grace. So let's, let's glean some things from it as we work through this and see why it's so important that we ground ourselves or devote ourselves to the gospel um, as we think about navigating these difficult scenarios of life. Number one, we're going to see this. The gospel frees us to serve others for Christ. The gospel frees us to serve others for Christ. This is the first scene in our passage, and this is the one where it's kind of things inside the church. Here's where we see Paul navigate the tensions between believers in the church, and Paul does so with grace. He, he serves his brothers and sisters in Christ in, in personally sacrificial ways. I want you to imagine with me the, the tone of things in the Jerusalem church, Okay. This is where the church began. We could think back to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And it's interesting that Paul's arrival in Jerusalem was right near the very same celebration, Pentecost. We don't know exactly how many years later this is, but this is sort of the, the anniversary celebration of the Jerusalem church here. And so the Apostle Paul is among them. And the church in Jerusalem was unique and that it involved many, many Jews. Now, now, a lot of the churches that Paul had been working with, they had Jews in them, Jews who trusted in Christ as Savior, uh, but it was a larger mix and sometimes even a larger portion of Gentile believers in those churches. But the Jerusalem church had a strong Jewish population, and so they begin hearing about Paul's ministry, and you can imagine the tensions. Do you remember back to Acts chapter 15, when the Gentiles were coming to Christ, and there was this tension between Jews and Gentiles? The word Gentile just means somebody who's not a Jew. That after coming to Christ, after believing in Christ, did, did, a, did a Gentile believer, a non-Jew, did they need to begin keeping the law did they have to begin, you know, doing sacrifice, living by the Jewish customs? You know, there was this tension. Like, for instance, what if, what if two families were together for a meal? They're both members of the church in Jerusalem, but one family is not Jewish at all, and the other family is, is Jewish. And then there's this meat that's prepared for the meal, but it's been offered to, uh, it had been offered to idols at the temple and then sold for a lower price. And so then the, the Jewish families, oh, we can't. You know, we can't eat that. The Gentiles family, oh, come on, we've prepared this, right? You can see there, there were tensions. The Apostle Paul wrote about many of those things in the church, how to navigate those tensions. And so this is the, the tone in Jerusalem as the Apostle Paul comes back. So hopefully that gives us more understanding as we see the concern that they bring up to them. Let's catch up with what's going on. Verses 15 through 17, just track their travels. Remember, they'd been north in Caesarea at the house of Philip. And uh, I don't think I got a map in there this week. No, no map. So you're just going to have to imagine it with me. They'd been north in Caesarea, and they'd been working their way south, even though it says going up to Jerusalem. The idea is they're actually going uphill to Jerusalem. 
Uh, Jerusalem's on the south end of Israel. And so they're working their way down towards there. They finally arrive, as we read in verses 15 through 17. They stay at the home of some man named Manasson, M-N-A-S-O-N. Who knows if that's exactly how it's said, but uh, we need a mnemonic device to remember Manasson's name. Anyway, uh, so Manasson of Cyprus. And And I love details like this in the scriptures. They're just fun reminders that Luke was an eyewitness. He was there. He experienced these things. There's no need to include. If this was a made-up story, Manasin would not exist, right? But this all really happened. And probably the reason his name is included is that he was known in the early church. And so uh, Luke's recording these things. Maybe Theophilus knew him or others, you know, that Luke is writing to. So it's just fun little tidbits as we work through the text here. Anyway, so they they make their way to Jerusalem and they lodge with Manasin of Cyprus. Verse 17, note that they received them gladly. So there, there is love, there is warmth in the church there. And as these uh, believers come to Jerusalem, there's a, there's a warm reception. So it's not all negativity here, there's, there's a glad reception. Verse 18, Paul goes to visit with James. Now James is, the, the one listed here we believe is the half-brother of Jesus. And he's what, maybe in our terms today, we could call him like the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But he's not the only pastor. You notice in the verse, all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. So uh, at least at the day of Pentecost, when the church started, there were 3,000 people added to the Jerusalem church. This is a large church with a lead pastor and other pastors as well. And uh, Paul comes to them. Now, some of those believers have been scattered by persecution. But as we see, there are many more that have come to trust in Christ. This is a thriving church there in Jerusalem. And so Paul goes to meet with James. Verse 19, he greeted them and he tells them in detail all the things God had done in, uh, through his ministry among the Gentiles. I love that the way Paul puts it, we shouldn't be surprised, but the things that God had done, right? Giving glory to God. And verse 20, let part uh, part A there, the first part, it's clear that the believers just celebrate with him. They, they praise God. So they're, they're excited about the gospel going to the Gentiles. And even though there are going to be some tensions that come up, the overall tone of this is one of joy and uh, excitement about what God is doing to grow the church. But verse 20, after their little time of praise, there, there is just one thing, Paul, that we need to mention. Notice what they say. They said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So James probably is the speaker here, speaking for the other pastors of the Jerusalem church, and they're rejoicing in God's work as well. They say, look, Paul, there are myriads of Jews who have trusted in Christ here in Jerusalem. The gospel is expanding even here. The word myriad actually could be translated thousands We don't know how many believers there are, but this could be a church of thousands. Even after, you know, some of the believers were dispersed from Jerusalem, a large, thriving church, many Jews coming to Christ, thousands or myriads, as the text says. And so James is explaining, being right here in Jerusalem, many of these were, you know, devout Jews, and they continue to be zealous for the law. So they've Believed in Jesus as Savior, but they continue to practice law-keeping. Now, we don't know all that this means, but we can sort of give James the benefit of the doubt that they're genuine believers. So that means a shift has taken place. They're not seeing the law as earning their righteousness, because that's super foundational to the gospel, that, that Jesus is our righteousness, not the law. And so it I think we can make a safe assumption here that they're, they're believing a true gospel. We, we know Paul pretty well. He probably would have confronted it if they'd not been believing a true gospel. So they're probably really believing the gospel, but they're still zealous to keep the law. Think about it. Think about the things that you know, have been a, a source of spiritual encouragement in your life, and maybe you come to a place where you've trusted in Christ as Savior, and realize, oh, you know what? I don't, I don't need to do those things anymore to be right with God. You know, maybe, maybe even before coming to Christ, there was a lot of church attendance. There were a lot of praying and things like that. And then you trust in Christ and you realize, oh, I don't have to earn my relationship with God anymore. It's all given to me in Christ. 
But you might keep doing those spiritual disciplines because they're good and they're healthy and they're helpful to you as a person trying to walk with Christ. I think that's a, maybe a way to understand how these Jews were, were living. They, they continued to want to go to the temple and to be near to God, and they, they believed in Jesus, but they wanted to keep up these devoted practices to the Lord. They were zealous for the law. So here's where the problem comes, verse 21. They have been informed about you, so they've heard something about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. Okay, so here's the problem. There's this rumor going around that Paul is telling the Jews in these other cities right, where many Gentiles were coming to Christ, there were Jews coming to Christ as well, that Paul there was teaching them to abandon the Old Testament, literally forsake Moses, referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. Ah, forget about those things. And that he's actually teaching them not to be circumcised, not to circumcise their children, and not to keep the customs. Well, it's a good question. Is this what Paul was teaching? And so as a brief aside, let's consider. I think the answer is no. Let's take each one of these in turn. First of all, did Paul teach uh, those who came to Christ to forsake Moses? Well, no, I think as you look at Paul's teaching, he actually continues to teach and preach with great respect for the Old Testament and for the law. Never in Paul's teaching do we see anything about forsaking the Old Testament. To, to leave it behind and not even read it. In fact, Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, the law is holy, just, and good. And in that passage, he's explaining how the law helps us to see our sin and to show us our need for a Savior. So, so Paul has a high regard for the Old Testament, for the law. So that one's a false one. What about circumcision? Did Paul teach anyone that they ought not to be circumcised? No, Paul taught very clearly that it just wouldn't gain them anything right? It wouldn't make them more holy or more spiritual, and so he kind of left it as a, a, a choice of freedom. His clear encouragement was, don't see it as something that earns you anything with God, because it certainly doesn't do that. But he never taught someone not to be circumcised, which is what the claim was here. And then finally, the Jewish customs. Was he, was he teaching people to, to stop these customs because they were somehow wrong or sinful? And again, we don't see that in the Apostle Paul. Certainly, he taught not to view them as a means of righteousness. Um, but we saw in Paul's life himself that he actually continued some of the Jewish customs. You remember in Acts chapter 18, when he took that vow and went to the temple. So even Paul continued to practice these customs. So I think these are all false claims against Paul. However, the church in Jerusalem has an idea. Notice what they say in verse 22. They say, the assembly is going to gather, the church is going to meet together, and they know that you're present, so they're going to have some questions. Verse 23. So here's what we want you to do. And James begins to tell him about how there's four men in the church, and we don't know exactly what happened, but they've taken some kind of vow. The most common vow we know of is called the Nazarite vow. That one is mentioned in the Old Testament. But there were other, all sorts of vows that a person could make. And what they were intended to be was an act of devotion to the Lord. And they often involved some kind of personal sacrifice, going to the temple more regularly, offering some animal sacrifices, some sort of purification rituals of devotion to God. So there's a variety of things that they could have involved. And we're just not told in the text exactly what kind of vow this is. But four men in the church have decided they want to express their devotion to God by making these vows. James encourages Paul to help them keep those vows. He, he says to take them to the temple. Uh, he asks Paul to be purified with them. So that means to go through whatever sacrifices they went through, personal sacrifices, maybe, uh, you know, extra bathing or you know, any number of things that could have included. We just don't know for sure. But he actually asked Paul to go through the same process as they did. He also asked Paul to pay for their expenses. Now, these vows could have been an expensive thing, depending on how many animal sacrifices were involved. Uh, maybe grain offerings, maybe other kind of offerings may have been involved. And so this could have been, for, you know, for four guys and then Paul as well. Five people now, Paul's having to fork up the money here to pay for these rituals. 
So this is becoming quite an expensive thing for the Apostle Paul. Now, James' goal, I think, is fine. He says it there at the end of verse 24, that, um, that these rumors may be put down, the things of which they were informed concerning you, are nothing. So he's just trying to clear the air and make it clear in the early church that the Apostle Paul is not teaching that the, to forsake Moses or any of that. Okay, He's just trying to clear the air. Uh, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. Now, verse 25 kind of reminds us of Acts chapter 15. James is really just concerned about what's happening with the Jews here. They've already talked about the non-Jews, and Acts chapter 15 was about that. They don't need to keep the law. They just need to observe you know, some of these things. Uh, they're mentioned there in verse 25. Uh, stay away from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. And again, that was to help the tensions between Jews and Gentiles. So we see Paul's response in verse 26. Paul took the men, the next day having purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So he does it. He, he, he takes the advice of James and these other pastors that certainly he did not have to do this, right? I mean, I, I think I would have spent my time sort of claiming like, whoa, this is absurd. I haven't taught anything of the sort. Uh, let's just Let's just tell the Jews that I don't teach these things. You know, why do I have to go? Why do I have to spend all this money and, and you know, waste all this time? Is probably the way I would have put it. But Paul very graciously is like, hey, if you think this will help the believers in the church here, then I'll do it. And he does. And he just walks through these things with grace. Now, again, we don't hear all of the conversations behind the scenes, but it's clear that Paul heeds their advice. Now, there are some that criticize Paul for this. They, they, they make the claim that he's confusing the gospel. But if we track along Paul's writings that are going on about this same time, it, it becomes pretty clear that I, I don't think he's confusing the gospel here. See, Paul had clearly, as one commentator puts it, rejected the law as a means of justification, but not as a model of life. He did not trust it uh, its observance to secure his salvation, but he practiced its ceremonies as one who loved his nation and was glad to avoid any needless offense to fellow countrymen. Paul had, just before this time, uh, written a letter to the Corinthian church. For, we call it First Corinthians today. Notice, I, I think, how Paul describes his own perspective on this in First Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to these verses, and I think you'll see how they really align with what Paul is doing here. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. See, Paul had devoted himself to the gospel, and so he's ready to serve and sacrifice for the good of the gospel, for the good of the church. Was all of this necessary for Paul to do? Probably not. But he graciously walks through that to help the believers there in Jerusalem. So I think we see that the gospel frees us to serve others for Christ. I remember one missions trip I was on to the island of Corsica, which is actually a, uh, owned is not the right word, it's a, a territory of France. Um, and so it's a, it's a beautiful island just off of Italy. Uh, we were working with some missionaries there. Uh, and one of the unique things on that island is the presence of strong superstition. And so it was really interesting talking with the missionaries about how they had sought to promote the gospel, but also without uh, giving unnecessary offense. And specifically in the area of superstitions, it became complicated. 
So I don't remember all of the unique things that they believed, but it was quite extensive. One that I do remember was, was shaking hands. Uh, you could actually curse a family for the rest of their existence if you shook hands and crossed arms with somebody else. You know, say you're in a group of four or whatever, and oh, nice to meet you, nice to meet you, and you, you cross arms or whatever. And so I remember talking with the missionaries about this, and, and so they were kind of wrestling through, well, okay, we don't believe that crossing arms like that brings any kind of a curse on anybody, but if we do that here, this family, you know, whoever we've done that to believes they're, they're cursed for the rest of their existence. And so they were talking through how for the sake of the gospel, they begin to work hard when they shake hands not to cross arms with people, lest it distract from the way they're trying to love them. Now, is it necessary to, to worry about those kinds of superstitions? Well, on the one hand, no, right? Because we know they don't, they don't mean anything. There's nothing to them. They're not real. But on the other hand, it's a way to serve people for the sake of the gospel, to be careful how we live, and to even sacrifice our own freedoms. We're free to cross arms when we shake hands. You're all going to be thinking about this after the service when you shake hands with people, right? We're free to shake hands however we like. But it impacted me to note how the missionaries were willing to, to give up that right in order to serve the people of Corsica, to avoid that stumbling block so they could make the gospel clear. And I think this is the way the gospel continues to impact us in the body of Christ. You see, the gospel teaches us that, yes, we are free. This is kind of what Christ has done for us. He's freed us from our sin from our enslavement to the law, meaning having to keep the law to earn our own righteousness. He's freed us from that. He's freed us from our selfishness. I mean, there's any number of ways we could kind of take that idea of freedom. Galatians 5.1 is one passage that talks about that. Christ has made you free. And so this is a rich truth of the gospel. We were justified. We have been granted divine righteousness in Christ Jesus by faith. So, in that sense, we're free. We don't have to keep the law to earn righteousness. We don't have to do this or do that to, to be seen as righteous before God. We're, we're granted it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel teaches us something else as well. It teaches us to use that freedom to love and serve others. We tend to grasp onto that freedom to serve ourselves, right? And so a lot of the discernment issues of the Christian life, we ask in terms of, well, am I allowed to do this or not? Can I or can't I? What am I allowed to do? And in our freedom in Christ, there is a lot of freedom there. But the New Testament compels us to ask a different question. How do I love and serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? How do I use my freedom, the fact that in Christ I have everything that I need, divine righteousness and God's abundant provision and promises and he's with me at all times and an inheritance and I have everything in Christ that frees me from needing anything in this life. But do I use that for myself? No, the, the scriptures are clear. We use that to love and serve. Galatians 5, 13, use your liberty not as a license to sin, but in love, serve one another. And so we see that in the Apostle Paul here. He gives up his rights. He didn't have to do these vows or pay for their sacrifices, but he does it for the good of the church. He gives up his own comfort for the good of others. And it's a good reminder how the gospel frees us to serve others for Christ. It doesn't free us to serve ourselves. It frees us to serve others. And this is how we navigate tensions in the church. The gospel empowers us to serve others. So let's think of a few practical examples, any number of tensions that might come up in the church. Uh, let's say there's you know, a place in the room that you always like to sit, okay? Now, we're just getting used to that in here because we've only been here for three weeks now, and so we're still finding our seats, right? Mine's right over here. But do you know what happened last week? Somebody was in my seat. Have you ever had that happen to you? Right. I don't know. The nerve of people, right, to sit in our seats. Now, think about our gospel freedom. And, I, and I'm being a little bit facetious here, but it's a good starting example for us. Think about our gospel freedom. The gospel literally teaches us that I do not need a specific seat 
when I gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, because all my needs are met in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I have to sit in a different location, I know I'll be okay. Why do I know I'll be okay? Because of the promises granted to me in the gospel. Right? So, so even down to where we sit. Now, not only am I free to you know, sit wherever and I, I'll be okay with that, but then the gospel moves me one step further to actually use my freedom to sit wherever to serve others. So that then, as, I, as the gospel infiltrates more and more pockets of my life, maybe when I enter the room to find a seat, Christ might grow me to actually think about other people when I choose my seat. Where would other people maybe not want to sit? Well, maybe I'll sit towards the front. Maybe I'll scoot in towards the middle of the aisle so that other people don't have to do that. Maybe I even figure out where the cold air lands in the room, right? <laughs> So, you know what, I'll take that. I'll, I'll bring a sweater and I'll take it so that somebody else doesn't have to. Right? You see, this, this is how the gospel compels us to serve one another in the church because we have all our needs met in Christ. I don't have to worry about myself anymore. I can serve others. Now, of course, we can apply that to a silly example like finding a seat in the room. But this ought to touch every category of life. And, you know, that's a very lighthearted one. It's not a serious tension in the church. But there are serious tensions in the church about what things we do or don't do. And this family has, has kind of this standard, but another family has a different standard. Or I like how they handled it, but I don't like how they handled it. Or there's this offense that comes up. But the gospel frees us to serve one another and thereby navigate even those stronger tensions. It's sufficient for that. Even if it means great personal cost, this is what Jesus calls us to, and it's all rooted in what Jesus did for us. The gospel frees us to serve others for Christ. Now, in this next scene, we're going to see how the tension expands not just from the local church, but now it's outside the church. It's unbelievers who are pressing in on Paul's life. And this is a, quite a dramatic scene. We read it already, and so just kind of imagine it with me as we walk down through it. In verse 26, we, Paul does what, what they've asked him to do in the local church, and it's actually while he's doing that, while he's submitting to the Jerusalem church, that this other tension arises. So again, this isn't even something that, you know, this would have been so frustrating to me. Can you imagine? Oh, so all of a sudden, the, the non-believing Jews in Jerusalem begin persecuting Paul for being in the temple. You know, what would have run through my mind was, why did I listen to the believers and do this silly sacrifice thing? I wouldn't have even been here. But because I listened to them, now I'm here in the temple, and now this other thing has come up. People, you know, that's my heart. But Paul is in that way. This, this trial comes up. And the, the, the riot begins quickly. I mean, these Jews from Asia, we're told in verse 27, that would be like Ephesus would have been the cities in Asia. And I think these specific ones are from Ephesus because they mention another guy from Ephesus here in a little bit. So they cry out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place and has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. And verse 29 tells us they thought... They assumed that Paul had brought this man named Trophimus the Ephesian with him uh, in the city and that Paul had brought him into the temple. So this guy was, was not a Jew, he was a Gentile. And there were restrictions about where Gentiles went in the temple. In fact, they've even found signs uh, from the temple that read, you know, if you're a Gentile and you go beyond this point, basically you're responsible for your own death. That's kind of how the, that's my uh, paraphrase of what the sign said. So this is, they took this seriously, and so they assume Paul has done this, and now as a result, they're calling for his death. The charges are against, that he teaches against the people, that refers to specifically against Jews, so this is an accusation of what we would call today anti-Semitism, accusing Paul of preaching against the Jewish people, which is absurd in and of itself because he was a Jew. Uh, number two, they, they accuse him of teaching against the law. This is similar to the Christians where they say, oh, he's encouraging people to forsake Moses. The same kind of charge here. 
And then number three, this place, they're in the temples. That's referring to the temple. He's preaching against the temple of God. So these are the main charges, as well as bringing a non-Jew into the temple. And so in verse 30, the whole city is in an uproar. They're, they're, they're uh, shouting and screaming and pushing and shoving and all of this. They finally seize Paul and drag him out of the temple. And with this dramatic close to verse 30, the, the doors of the temple are shut. We'll come back to that in just a second. And it's very clear in verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. Well, news gets to the commander, and the commander doesn't have any loyalty to Paul, but he's a Roman commander. The commander was often in charge of, of, uh, of a couple thousand, and then the centurions were in charge of a hundred. Uh, and so he, some centurions, and some soldiers run to the scene to try to stop this riot. Remember, Roman priorities here were to stop riots, to keep the peace. They really don't care about Paul's life so much. Uh, they just want to stop the chaos here. And so they come running to the scene. Uh, interesting tidbit. We'll find out later the commander's name is Claudius Alicius, and so we can uh, think of his name here. It's kind of fun to know who he was. So he runs to the scene. He comes near, and uh, verse 32, there's an interesting thing I want to point out to you. It's when they see the commander and the soldiers, they stop beating Paul. How long were they beating Paul? We don't know exactly, but I mean, just think about the timing of this. How long does it take to go get the commander, for the commander to grab a couple other centurions and maybe a couple hundred soldiers? If you have multiple centurions, the likelihood is you have hundreds of, of soldiers as well. How long does it take to grab all of that and come to this location? It's finally when they see Claudius, the commander, coming that they stop beating him. This was a, a heavy-duty beating that Paul had taken here. And it's kind of just that last phrase of verse 30. They stopped beating Paul. So the commander comes near. They bind him with chains. There's the fulfillment of our prophecy. He's bound with chains and he's handed over to the Gentiles. God's word had come true with what was predicted with Paul. Verse 34 through 36 kind of concludes the scene. Uh, the, the commander can't really tell what the people are shouting, uh, so they are going to take him into the barracks. Notice in verse 35, um, we don't know exactly what it, what it means. It says that he, he had to be carried because of the violence of the mob. There's two possibilities. Either they're still like grabbing at him, pulling him down, and so the soldiers had to like lift him up in the air to get him up. I actually think it's more so the result of the violence of the mob previously that they had beat him so much he couldn't walk up the stairs and so the, the, the soldiers had to carry him up because of his injuries. Now, again, we don't know for sure, but it, at any rate, there's a lot of violence here and uh, Paul needs help getting up the stairs and so the soldiers carry him up. And the scene closes in verse 36 with those words, away with him. It's the exact same phrasing Luke had written some time before. You know the other time Luke wrote these words? At the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And John recorded similar uh, words as well. This is what was cried, away with him, crucify him. And I think the reader is intended to see the parallels between what happened to Jesus Christ and what was happening to the Apostle Paul. And it brings to light for us that this actually wasn't just about Paul. It wasn't that they just didn't like Paul. This is really about Jesus. It's really about the gospel. See, the thing that, the, the problem they had with Paul is that Paul was a messenger of the gospel. He was proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. And this was truly the problem they had with what Paul was doing. Paul was prepared to suffer for the gospel of Christ, and that's exactly what he was doing. This was suffering for the gospel. So number two today, we learn from the second scene, the gospel prepares us to suffer for Christ. It prepares us to suffer for Christ. Paul knew that this was coming. He knew that as one who would be a messenger of the gospel, that there would be those who resist. Jesus had told his followers this. As the world has hated me, so they will hate you. You see, we who carry the name of Christ, honored to carry the name of Christ, will also face the hatred that comes with the name of Christ. And the gospel reminds us of that truth and even prepares us to suffer if necessary for the sake of Christ. 
And this is what this is really about. Jerusalem has now reacted against Jesus, Peter, John, Stephen, and now Paul as well. And John Stott points out in his commentary that the slammed gates of the temple seem to symbolize the final Jewish rejection of the gospel there in Jerusalem. The gospel prepares us to suffer for Christ. Maybe you've read the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She has kind of a a biography out that you can read. Um, It tells about how her conversion. And before coming to Christ, she was living a a lesbian lifestyle. She was a tenured professor at a, a liberal institution. And she had written an article in a newspaper and received letters back regarding that article. And uh, as the story goes, she would put the, the, the letters in two piles, either people that loved her and her message or people that hated her and her message. And so she had these two piles and every, every letter she got, but there was one letter that she really had trouble uh, putting in one pile. And as the story goes anyway, she, she kept moving it back and forth. <laughs> It was a letter from a local pastor. And what threw her off was the way that he did two things at the same time. On the one hand, he clearly stood in opposition to her propositions. The truths that she was promoting, he disagreed with. But he did so in a loving, respectful, and a kind way. And so she had trouble classifying the letter. Turns out the pastor and his wife invited Rosaria over for a meal to discuss uh, the content of her article and, and the letter and so forth. And she took them up on it. And as the story goes, she went to their house and they enjoyed a meal and they got to know one each other. And, and again, the, the respect and love continued, even though he would disagree firmly with her perspectives. He did so in such a loving way. She was intrigued and continued to come back. And again, she tells of how they showed sacrificial love for her. So early on in their, in their meetings together, she was a, a staunch vegan. And so they prepared vegan meals for her uh, and, and would eat with her in that way. She was opposed to air conditioning because of, of the, the carbon production and so forth. And so when she was over, they, they shut off their air conditioning as a, as a service to her. Right? And she describes the different ways that their freedom in Christ was displayed in their service to her. And two things were clear at the same time. While they didn't agree with her, they were willing to sacrifice to love her. And... God used that in a powerful way, and it came to be that over a period of time, she came to know Christ as Savior through the testimony of these believers. You see, this is what the gospel calls us to do, not not to use our freedoms to serve ourselves, but to devote ourselves to the proclamation of the gospel and to be empowered by what Christ has done for us to love others in the same way, to serve, to even lay down our lives for the good of others, for the sake of the gospel. The gospel prepares us to suffer for Christ. Maybe you're here today and all this talk of the gospel is new to you. Let's rehearse it one more time so you understand how the gospel does indeed compel us. You see, gospel is that it all begins with God as our creator. He made us in the beginning, he made all things. And as our creator, he set up for us a perfect standard of living it was good and right and perfect, and we walked in perfect fellowship with him. But then man sinned against God. We, we chose to do what we wanted instead of what he said was good. We rebelled and condemned ourselves forever to eternal punishment and separation from God. God, being a loving God and one who loved us while we were still sinners, sent his son Jesus Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned, never did anything against his Father. And therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice to take upon himself the sins of the world. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave. And God, through Jesus, offers salvation to anyone who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To have our evil deeds washed away, charged to the account of Jesus who paid for them on the cross. And in that place, given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
so that we can have the kind of relationship with the Father that God the Son has with the Father. Fully reconciled, at peace with God, forgiven, and heirs with Christ of God. I mean, amazing privileges of the gospel given, granted to us by faith. And so the invitation comes to you today to have your sins forgiven and to be right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you've never done that, would you believe in the gospel today? There isn't salvation in any other, but only in the name of Jesus. The thing is, the gospel then creates a stumbling block. The gospel itself is a stumbling block because there's something we have to admit in coming to faith in Christ, and it's that what we have done is wrong. That living for myself, doing what I want is sinful. That God is right and I am wrong. It is built into the gospel truth that I needed a Savior. And this becomes a stumbling block for people. People don't like to be told that they're wrong and that they're in trouble. But this is the good news that we are called to bring to people. And so there will be a stumbling block. There will be those who hate uh, the gospel, who hate Jesus because they do not want to admit that their deeds are evil. John chapter 3. And yet the gospel trains us to have victory even through our suffering. Apostle Paul writes about this a lot, how he enjoys the fellowship with Christ in his own sufferings as he partakes of suffering for the gospel. Notice how he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that you would stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, this life is for the next life. This life is for our gospel witness, even ready to suffer for the sake of Christ if need be. Now, we don't have to seek that out, <laughs> thankfully. But we do need to be prepared that as we bring the gospel to a sinful, fallen world, there will be times that we face suffering for the name of Christ. There are trials that we will face outside the body of Christ. The gospel teaches us that we always do what's pleasing to the Father, and this will get us into trouble with those who are seeking to live to please themselves. Now, I'm thankful that we live in a country where we, we typically don't face violent kinds of persecution. I, I don't know, you know how far we may be from that kind of thing. By God's grace, we continue to pray for a place where we can worship Him in peace and the gospel can go forward in peace. And we, we praise God for that. It's, it's interesting, even in the next passage, a sovereign God will use Rome to preserve Paul's life and to give him more opportunities to present the gospel. May God do the same kinds of things here in our country. May the gospel flourish in this place. But sometimes, you know, because persecution seems far away, we think, well, yeah, I think I'd be willing to face persecution. But sometimes we struggle just facing discomfort for the sake of the gospel. People can be uncomfortable, can't they? We tend to like to move away from people when they make us uncomfortable. When relationships get difficult, when people have perspectives or practices that, that we don't like, it's tempting to sort of withdraw. One of the things that became popular in our culture over, um, over COVID and, and as things become more liberal is that people are moving away from cities. And so move to the country and move to a place where there are more conservative policies but I wonder if this aligns well with what the gospel teaches us to do. To, to embrace the discomforts of people in order to bring the gospel to them. Even if that means personal sacrifice and suffering in order to reach people with the gospel of Christ. Are we so committed to moving towards people with the gospel that we're ready to be uncomfortable in order to do it? The gospel teaches me as well what love looks like. 
Sometimes we begin to define love in our own terms, that, you know, I'll love people on my terms, the ways that are comfortable to me, the ways that are convenient with my life, that fit in well with the things I do and love. I'll love people with those. And that's, that's not wrong. But the gospel calls us to a deeper, richer love, a love that lays down our lives for the good of others. Why? Because this is how Jesus loved us. We're, we're told this in, in marriages, we understand that, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what gave himself for her. But do you realize that actually this is just true in the Christian life? In John chapter 15, as Jesus talks to his disciples, he says to them, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And then again, he comes back to that command, love one another as I have loved you. I wonder, is our gospel understanding compelling us in different ways to be laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ and even ready to do so to take the gospel to a world in need of Jesus Christ? Gospel devotion reminds us that Jesus laid down his life for me so I can lay down my life for others. It reminds us that Jesus is meeting all my needs so I don't have to focus on me. I can serve and give to others. The gospel frees us to serve others and it prepares us to suffer for the sake of Christ. May we be a people devoted to the gospel. May we navigate the tensions of the Christian life inside the church and the trials of the Christian life outside the church with gospel grace that magnifies the love of Jesus Christ. And by our love one for another, people look on this place and say, wow, that's a unique kind of love. They must follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And we thank you for what we see in the Apostle Paul's life. We do indeed desire to be a people filled with gospel grace, ready to sacrifice, ready to suffer for the good of others. Lead us and guide us in this. We thank you for meeting all of our needs in Christ. And we praise you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.